Welcome to the function room. And this time, my daughter Ruby is getting a little annoyed with the influence of the algorithm. Sometimes we do. Do we have to be careful if we let YouTube just play forever? Uh-huh, because sometimes um, there's very annoying ads on it. Annoying ads come up, don't they? What, do they? what are the ads for? Are they for, like, very special things? Um, they're boring to me, but they might be exciting to you. Okay. There's one about Grammarly in the Three Little Pigs. And Grammarly, is it? Yeah. And the three little heads. <laughs> and when the, and the, um, and the ad comes when the wolf comes out of the bush. So when the wolf comes out of the bush, an ad for Grammarly comes up. Yeah. And, and it says Grammarly, and in the ad it says Grammarly, um, will help you write um, fast and confidently so you never <laughs> have to go slow down at you never have to slow down at work. And then, but what about apart from the ads, Ruby? Do we have to be careful if we just let mm-hmm. the cartoons play and play and play? Sometimes, what happens if you let that happen? Sometimes, at the end of cartoons, there's stuff. There's a big box, and in the box are boxes, and showing, and inside those boxes, there are um little um. There are little pictures of cartoons showing stuff, and some of them are weird. I accidentally put on one of the cartoons. Okay. So what's happening, Ruby, mm-hmm. is they say there's an algorithm. What's an algorithm? Well, that's a very good question. An algorithm, writ large, is kind of just a recipe. Welcome to the Function Room. That was Cathy O'Neill, one of the world's leading thinkers on how algorithms and especially badly written, badly intended, or badly used ones, rule our lives. Cathy wrote the brilliantly titled Weapons of Math Destruction. In 2016, the New York Times said it offers a frightening look at how algorithms are increasingly regulating people. Her knowledge of the power and risks of mathematical models, coupled with a gift for analogy, makes her one of the most valuable observers of the continuing weaponization of big data. She does a masterly job explaining the pervasiveness and risks of the algorithms that regulate our lives. And she was very generous with her time to talk to me about what she's doing now the algorithmic auditing of companies, asking them the question, what does your algorithm do? Who does it benefit? Who does it disadvantage? She does this with her own company, O'Neill Risk Consulting and Algorithmic Auditing. Other algorithmic auditors are available, though not many yet. And before Cathy, you heard Ruby, aged five and a half, digital native, currently, but not for long, heavily regulated consumer of the internet. She's tired of ads for monster math cropping up every five minutes within her YouTube Disney Princesses compilation video. She has seen a CGI gorilla fighting a CGI crocodile when we accidentally let YouTube play on. 
Somewhere behind all of this are algorithms. And since The Function Room is the podcast that talks about the numbers and the maths that affect our lives, it seems like a good time to ask, what's the maths behind all of these algorithms? I will take a little issue with the idea that this is about math. Like, I think it does have a kind of a sheen of mathematical um, sophistication to it that people are distracted by and intimidated by. But this is really not math. Oh, okay. Yeah, Kathy, cut straight to the chase there on that one. So the bulk of the podcast is not about maths and its nuts and bolts and equations. It's about how we use algorithms. And in future episodes, we'll delve deeper into some mathsy type stuff from different angles uh, in relation to algorithms. But before we go back to Kathy, here's a quick potted history for people who tuned in for that sort of equation-y stuff. In maths and computer science, an algorithm is a list of instructions, a finite list. It tries to solve a problem in a non-vague, unambiguous way. So it could be used for performing calculations, for making huge uh, processes of large amounts of big data, for automating reasoning, benign stuff sometimes, like diagnosing medical conditions or helping doctors. Algorithms are around for ages. The Babylonians used them for laws. The Sumerians had them for working out division. Any civilization really that could write wrote down instructions to make doing the same stuff easier in future. The word algorithm itself comes from a man called Muhammad ibn Musa al-Khwarizmi, who lived in the 9th century. He was from Khwarazm, south of the Aral Sea in Central Asia. He worked as an astronomer. He was also head of the Library of the House of Wisdom in Baghdad. He wrote the world's first known book of algebra, the compendious book on calculation by completion and balancing. In fact, he gave us the word algebra because algebra is from the Arabic, meaning the restoring of broken parts or is often used in bone setting. He wrote a book called Ilm Algebar wa al-Muqabala, The Science of Restoring and Balancing. Seriously, why didn't we start with this Game of Thrones style stuff in school? Teenagers would have lapped it up. There are many types of algorithms. Obviously, the Google one, the search one is something that we've used Uh, for a couple of decades now, we're not even scratching the top layer of dust on the surface of algorithms today. I'm talking to Cathy about a particular type of one, one that looks at a human being and its data, makes a big judgment call about that human, and that call has a big effect on the human's life. Let's talk to Cathy. Usually when I talk about algorithms, I'm really referring to predictive algorithms. So at the end of the day, at the end of the algorithm, the output is a usually a score, a probability of an event, like a score between zero and a hundred, or between zero and one if it's a probability. Um, and you're tr- usually sort of saying, what is the odds? What are the odds of success? What's the probability of success? And you know, just putting it that way, you realize like we get scored all the time for all sorts of things, and success is an overloaded term because it's not always success actually. Um, and it's definitely not always success for the, from the perspective of the person being scored. But yeah, that lo- largely what I talk about when I say audit algorithms, I'm really thinking about auditing scoring systems. For somebody like me who isn't as familiar with being scored, the only thing I reach for when I think about I'm being rated or scored might be a credit score. But is it something far broader than that? Are there many more instances than that in the ways in which 
an algorithm is judging us. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these things are invisible, which is one of the reasons they're so um, treacherous, really. Um, because to the person being scored, they're largely unnoticeable, if not actually secret. So you're scored every time you go to any website on the likelihood of doing things. So if it's a e-commerce website, you're scored on the likelihood of buying. You're scored on the likelihood of, you know, uh, shopping around for insurance. And you will be charged more if you are considered somebody who doesn't do much shopping around. Um, so these scores have consequences, I guess, is the point. It's not, it's not just like they, they're kind of curious out of, in, in, you know, intellectual curiosity, like, oh, I wonder if this guy's going to buy something. No, they're like, if he's going to buy, if he's going to be a high value customer, we're going to treat him differently than if he's going to be a low value customer. Um, so you're constantly being shuttled either into like environments that give you more options or into environments that give you fewer options or different options, depending on what they think your likelihood of actions are. And how did a word which seems, you know, like algorithm seems seem to be benign at some point, And then over the last few years, we were now aware of the algorithm, capital T, capital A, as as almost this entity that we have no control over and it uh, seems to have so much control over our lives. And I know it's more complex than that, but what what was it that brought these algorithms into our lives? How did they come to shape us so much? Well, I mean, I, I guess I would say that sort of the advent of data science, which is sort of the world of these predictive algorithms, kind of really started in finance. And so like it started in the context of like market trying to predict the market. I used to work at a hedge fund, like writing algorithms for trading futures. Um, so they were very, I mean, and the reason they showed up and the reason they stayed is because they were better than guessing, much better than guessing. Um, and computers um, trained on algorithms with good data could actually pick up patterns that humans just simply wouldn't be able to see. And that sort of was very easy to translate from the world of finance and and financial markets to the world of e-commerce. So as soon as we became we ourselves um, as 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 humans shopping and d- doing clicking and all those things, we became sort of big data because so many of us engaged in these behaviors, like that we were be- we became predictable in the ways that markets had been. That's that's why algorithms showed up there and that's why they stayed because they're a lot better than guessing. They they essentially work pretty well, not perfectly um, by any means. But the way I say it is in finance, in futures, like if you can be correct 51% of the time, you make money. Um, you don't need to be perfect whatsoever in order to make money. And similarly, like social media or e-commerce sites like Amazon, if they just make more money because their algorithms are slightly better, then that's enough incentive because it's so scaled. And you were working in that area, watching, I suppose you were wielding this power, watching how this power could be wielded over financial markets and, and seeing it extend to people. Did you then get a weird feeling about 
the job you were in and try to do something else, but with the with the knowledge you had? Yeah, I mean, I'd go a little further than that. In fact, like I left finance kind of disgusted by the feeling that I had been played a part. I joined Occupy like pretty quickly. But even before I joined Occupy, I started a blog sort of just to warn people away from what I thought of as a misuse of mathematics and a misuse of the authority of science so that people would trust financial math too much. And then I saw it being applied in my new job, which I had taken as a way of absconding from, you know, what I considered corrupt acts to something where I was like, well, at least it's benign, you know, just showing someone an ad or not, it's at least benign. But then I like, yeah, as you say, like I immediately started realizing, wait a second, I am just segregating people by income primarily, but also by gender, by race, by zip code, um, by all sorts of things that I actually totally disagree with. Because I mean, I'm I'm not having that much of an effect on them, but the, the overall technology, which this was back in 2011 or 2012 or 2013, when I really started getting worried, like was clearly growing at a huge rate. And there were very few people that were worried about it. In fact, I didn't know anyone else besides myself who was like, what, what the heck is going on here? This can't be good. I mean, I, I now know that there were other people like that, but I just didn't know them. Is it hyperbole to say that looking at the, what mathematics was being used for to manipulate people or to judge people, is it hyperbole to say it's a bit like a physicist looking at the splitting of an atom and saying, oh, God, what what have I done, or what am I what am I part of? You know, I don't know enough history to know the answer to that. Um, I assumed that people knew; they must have known to some extent what they were doing by splitting the atom. They must have known pretty specifically what the goal there was. I assume, but I guess other people who are just like, well, I, I never was joining that particular project, but uh, you know. I do wonder what's going on with our field. Yeah, I, I, I think there's that's true. And, and to be clear, like, one of the scariest things to me was that, whereas in finance, at least people knew they were there for the money. In at the time when I was working in big data, people really did think they were making the world a better place. Like they really believed in that, like, don't be evil stuff of Google at the time. So it was really jarring um to to sort of live among such naive people and and to be clear like not only were they naive but they were not malevolent i guess there are malevolent people don't get me wrong like I, at this point i feel like cheryl sandberg and mark zuckerberg can be definitely classified as problematic in their intentions but at the time it was like everybody was just like oh my god we're getting connected with our ex boyfriends from high school. This is so cool. You know, it was like really, really exciting and not at all worrisome yet. And and the goal of all these algorithms, just so because I'm I'm probably getting ahead of myself here, but the goal of any of them, whether it be in finance or social networks or credit scores or advertising and showing you what you want, the the benign naive goal is it's about reducing the amount of questions a human has to ask another human, is it? It's about like reducing friction between connections such that as soon as you open your eyes, 
The algorithm knows enough about you to know what you might do next and present you with the thing you probably want next. And when you buy something that that the friction and not knowing what to look for, that it's all taken care of by a benign piece of maths that knows you so well, you can go and have fun for the rest of the day because you don't have to spend time thinking. Is that was that like if you took all the if you made it as benign as possible, is that what, what it was about or is about? Well, okay, I, I will take a little issue with the idea that this is about math. Like, I think it does have a kind of a sheen of mathematical um, sophistication to it that people are distracted by and intimidated by. But this is really not math. This is mostly just data pattern matching, empirical, in, in fact. It doesn't have to do with the proofs. It has to do with, you know, um, just empirical testing. But... Um, I mean, I guess, and I, I'd also say that, like, yeah, that was definitely how it was presented by the venture capitalists who are creating this system of internet um, as a an ad business. Um, but even they knew better than that. Like, one of the stories I wrote about in my book was, like, the venture capitalist who came to my company, which was an ad tech company, and painted a picture of an of the world he wanted to see of of tailored ads where as he said he would never again have to look at another university of phoenix ad because those aren't for him for people like him you know and that you know i looked into it people who got university of phoenix ads were like poor black women single mothers hadn't gone to college but knew that their kids needed a better life than they had you know so they were going to go on online classes and they didn't know how much it would cost them. I didn't know the graduation rates. They didn't know that like, even if they got graduated, even if they graduated, they, it wouldn't really be better than a high school diploma. So it was like such a scam. And basically what the guy was saying, the VC was like, I don't want to get scammed. I want opportunities. And for people like me, there are opportunities. And for other people, we'll give them scams because they don't have, you know, they're not lucky enough like us to get opportunities. They don't deserve those things. You know, that was the implicit message. So, I mean, not to mention, like, the way it's actually set up isn't what you just described. It's not like, how do we make this person's life better? It is more like, who's willing to pay the most to distract this person? You know, and it might be, you know, and I am one of those lucky people, right? I'm a highly educated white woman with extra money. So I do end up getting distracted by things I like, like luxury yarns. You know, they follow me around the internet because I get really distracted by like jewel tones and silk yarn, right? So it's, it is close enough to my lived experience for that VC line. Like, oh, we're just connecting, we're getting rid of the friction to kind of work. Although I actually wouldn't choose to be looking at yarn as quite as much as I end up looking at it, but it's like, okay, all right. Um, but it's just simply like, think about how like people with gambling addictions get, get dogged by, you know, come ons from Caesar's palace. Like that's not removing friction. That's it, taking advantage of someone's weakness. Yeah. It's pusher. It's a pusher. And it's, it's a, for people who don't think that their addictions like yarn are that problematic, then it, it helps us think, oh, this is okay. It helps us all be consumeristic to, to the nth degree, if you will. That's where the math comes in. <laughs> so you, you move from finance and then you're into tech. And at, at some point you thought about shouting 
stop and trying to warn and connect with other people about this. And then you wrote the wonderfully titled Weapons of Math Destruction. Did you take the rest of the day off when you came up with that title? Because I would have. (laughs) You know what? My friend Aaron Abrams came up with that title. He's also a mathematician. And yeah, I mean, the poor guy, because now I have another book coming out and I've been torturing him with like coming up with a good title for it. So this was your the collection of your thoughts thus far saying shouting at the world just you need to be aware of what's going on i talked to a lot of people in in tech first and they did not care they didn't want to know about it you know and i was like oh wait i recognize this i was in finance and people didn't want to know about that either you know like people do not care if that's what they're making their money on they just don't. So that's why I wrote the book. So I was like, how do I get this message out to the people that might actually care? Could you give perhaps one of the more egregious examples of how an algorithm prejudges people is destructive, is wrong? I, I want to be careful here because I, I'm going to give you an egregious example of, of a risk score a crime risk score, it's called. But I also want to make the point that it's like not the scoring itself, but how it's used that's evil. So it's this, it's called a crime risk score. And what it's really doing is predicting re-arrest within two years of leaving prison or two years, within two years of not being in prison is a better way of saying it because it's sometimes used pre-trial. So it's predicting arrest. So as you might imagine, it's like easier to predict arrest if there are predictable things that the police do that ends up with arrests. I mean, I think it's fair to say you're really predicting the police. And you're asking, are you the kind of person that the police are likely to arrest? So framed it that way, the questions that you're asked are like, do you have a mental health problem? Are you poor? Do you have an addiction? Um, Do you live in a neighborhood where there's lots of police? A lot of them are proxies for race. A lot of them are proxies. Like, did you get suspended from high school? Did you have a college? Uh, did you go to college? Did, you know, um, they're proxies for class and race. And okay, that's interesting. And they're asking, are you going to be rearrested? They, it's called a crime risk score as if it really means like, are you criminal? They also ask questions about your criminal record. But to be clear, like because of the racist nature of police practices, like... It's just not true that we have crime records. We have arrest records. Like very, very few people get arrested for crimes. Like if you look at the actual list of crimes and then the arrests next to them, you'll realize that most crimes don't lead to an arrest at all, even murders. Anyway, long story short, it's really a question of like, what do police do? What, how do we predict the police? And it's pretty good at predicting police. The problem is, I mean, in, in particular, it, p- police consistently arrest people who have mental health problems, who are addicted, who are poor, who are black. Um, the problem is that instead of using that as a way to improve police practice, which is a way that scoring system could be really helpful because it could be say, hey, wait, <laughs> like maybe we should stop doing that so much. Um, we use it to punish people who are already going to be under a lot of scrutiny from the police. So like, you're like, okay, you look, if, if the answer is you have high risk, i.e. you are the person who are, the, who's, who are profiled by the police, you're sent to prison longer. So we punish people who are already in that category. And I just think like, it is a perfect example of how like, we, we just don't want to hold a mirror up to ourselves. You know, we don't want, we don't want to say, how can we do better? 
we want to say, how can we punish the victims more of our unfair system? And in that case, the technology is fine or neutral. It's just how the the how it's being wielded. It's almost always what you do with the information you have. Like, you know, we I have a whole section in in my book about education and standardized tests and stuff like standardized tests aren't that much of a problem in and of themselves because they ideally should show us where we need to add resources. Like the schools that have bad test scores, like those kids need better resources, you know, maybe from an earlier age. But instead of doing that, we punish the, the kids and then we punish the teachers of those kids. Like the we we locate struggle and then we punish the victims once again, like rather than saying, oh, here are these, these schools and these students that are struggling. Let's help them. No, like let's punish them. And so it's exactly the same problem. It's about a usage problem rather than um, the algorithm itself. Although I would say that the teacher value added model, which was derived from those student test scores, is actually just a random number generator. So in that case, it's like both punitive in a ridiculous way and just a crap statistical model. I sort of interrupted Cathy there when she was going on to talk a little bit more about education. Uh, but do look up Cathy's talk at Google or in her book, Weapon of Math Destruction, uh, particularly about how good teachers were once fired by an algorithm that the authorities couldn't even access to find out how it worked. Google Sarah Wysocki to find out how an algorithm that started as a way of measuring how valuable strawberries would be once turned into jam uh, ended up being used to decide whether teachers should keep their jobs. Wow, those Americans and their algorithms. Making a mess in education. We wouldn't be caught like that here in Ireland, would we? This briefing is about two errors in the calculated grades process for this year's Leaving Certificate. On Wednesday last, the Secretary-General of the Department of Education and Skills told me that a mistake had been spotted by the Canadian company developing the statistical software for our students' data. We knew one line out of 50,000 lines of code had a mistake in it. Yes, that was Irish Minister for Education there, Norma Foley, trying to explain a big old hames that happened here in Ireland last year. Due to COVID, students couldn't sit their final year of secondary school or high school examinations. So their results were given by an algorithm and the algorithm got it wrong. There was 50,000 lines of code, 50,000. They mentioned 50,000 a lot during that press conference. It sounds like a big number. So, you know, mistakes are understandable. That's what testing is for, if you actually did the testing. Anyway, while algorithms are making mistakes here, they're not sacking teachers here yet, but they are getting closer and closer to home. Back to Cathy. So having written about this and been on both sides of the coal face, if that's not a weird metaphor. Uh, you're now in business, Orca Risk. Are you one of many organisations of its type? Is Are you one of the few organisations that has algorithmic auditing in its title? There's a few now. I know of like three of us, small startups. And then there's, I mean, none of them have algorithmic auditing in their title except mine, as far as I know. Um, and then there's a, a few like big consulting firms that offer, you know, algorithms, al- algorithmic bias testing or what have you. Um, so it's like it's growing, I'd say. So an auditing firm in accounting goes in, it looks at the books. It has 
accounting practices, you know, laws in whatever country it's in. Um, maybe an accessibility audit, you know, looks at a building or looks at um, opportunities afforded to people with extra needs. When you, when a client hires you, what are they asking you to do? Why do they come to you? Are they in trouble when they come to you? Yeah, sometimes. Often the situation that they're in trouble. And and I'd like it to, I'd like it to be like, no, the ones that have the worst problems come to me, but no. It's typically like they're feeling unjustly accused by some newspaper article or something that, you know, we're not really that bad and you should show that to those guys. Right now we don't have enough leverage, you know, legal or otherwise or regulatory leverage to get at the algorithms that we're most concerned about, unfortunately. But maybe that'll change now that Trump is out. I mean, I hope. Um, but yeah, they come to us and like, we don't, we don't have, this is a new field. It's a new industry. So all of these new startups doing this stuff have a different way of thinking about it. And I, you know, I'm very much of the mind personally that this is not scalable yet. We, it's very tailor-made. It is very contextual. Just like I was just saying those two examples of like, you know, this is not the algorithm we're auditing. It's the algorithm and the consequence paired and, you know, because as I said, algorithms can be used for evil or for good, depending. So it's not the algorithm, but it's like, what happens next? What do you do with that result? Are there human oversight, you know, layers to make sure that people aren't being unduly thrown out of consideration for this job, if it's a job, if it's a hiring algorithm or something like that? So it's, um, you know, the way I look at it is, and it might eventually become systematic, like you've described with like sort of financial auditing. But right now what we're doing is we're sort of asking very comprehensively the question, what does it mean for this algorithm to succeed? What does it mean for it to fail? And for whom does it fail? Or for, for whom does it succeed? So we're asking, like, who are the stakeholders? Who gets impacted by this algorithm? And what does it mean from their perspective, not from yours, who owns it and deploys it and made it, but from their perspective, what does it mean for them to be harmed by this? And that's actually enough. Believe it or not, like, there's... there's a lot there. And there's just, it's kind of mystifying to me that, that big, 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 big companies with billions of dollars on the line, keep them making algorithms without asking that simple question, like for whom does this fail? But they don't, they don't ask, does this facial recognition algorithm work as well for black women as for white men? Like if they had asked that question, they wouldn't have made those enormous mistakes that they made, but they don't ask that question. So it's, so if, if this were software, it's like you're, you're the user testing it when nobody has looked at the design properly. Like you're you you're way down the at the wrong end of the cycle <laughs> to be auditing. It'd be ideally if you were auditing the design rather than the build. Yeah, I mean, I always say that when when we get sales calls, they're like, "Oh, maybe we're not far enough along in our process to be audited." I'm like, "No, no, you are. If you're in designing, like, yes, you are." Uh, can I ask a, a a stupid question just so I can get the shape of it in my mind? An auditor comes in and looks at spreadsheets and, you know, in the old days, a, a, you know, a tall ledger with immaculately handwritten numbers to double entry accounting. What is it you look at? Are you looking at code? Are you looking at the technical documentation? Or are you just interviewing them and saying, what does this do when I press submit? Somewhere like all of the above, really. Um because we start from that very high level question, like who could be harmed by this? Like what would it mean for them to be harmed? 
And, you know, what would it mean for this to fail? What are the existential threats to this algorithm? What kind of legal constraints does it, it does it live under? And what kind of ethical constraints do you want to make sure it is following? That's a, it starts in plain English, ends up being, you know, statistical tests. But more commonly, rather than looking at code, we just say, can you run this test and see, like put this population through and see the extent to which it works better for these people than those people. Or if you know, like the if the false positive rate is higher for this group of people over that group of people, or have you measured that, you know? They're kind of no-brainer questions, but I guess I would saying like, we normally the statistical questions we run or ask them to run um, are, are black box audit questions, not like, let me look at your code. Because honestly, I don't think that's very useful. Like, even if I said, oh, this code checks out, like, and it, it doesn't mean it works. It doesn't mean it's not racist. It has to, you have to actually see it if it's working and you have to test it on actual data. That's why it's not a mathematical construction, even if it involves mathematical equations. Like, even if there are like technically, you know, sophisticated methodologies in, in, in the code, that doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is like how it actually functions. When you are auditing, so again, just using the analogy of existing auditing, is there algorithmic laundering? Do people hide <laughs> bad stuff in their algorithm behind a complex network of, you know, the 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 answer from one set of questions feeds into the answer of another set and it becomes impossible to find out whether the algorithm is uh, biased against a particular group or not, or the answer is being used for good or bad. Like, is data like money now and it's being laundered. Does that analogy hold up? Well, I mean, I would argue that the um, the VW emission scandal was a, an algorithm that was laundered. Like, I mean, it, it, in other, not exactly laundered. It's not like laundered data. It was, it's more like, it was like, it was one thing on the road. It was a different thing in testing. And I, I do think that that could happen in the, in the f near future when like, when regulatory agencies finally get around to like regulating algorithms, I'm afraid what might happen is they might say, okay, hand us the algorithm that you're going to use to decide how much to charge someone for health insurance or whatever it is. And they'll hand them a version of the algorithm, which is equivalent to the, on the, uh, you know, in testing version of the emissions test for the, 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 you know, for the emissions, like for free W. And then when they actually are, when peop, normal people actually apply for health insurance, they're going to use a different algorithm that is in fact much more problematic, but wasn't tested by the regulator. So I do think there's an analogy there. And um, that's why you can't, you, you know, you have to do the equivalent of the on the road emissions test every now and then. You have to capture the actual admissions, emissions from the from the cars rather than trusting the test because the test is, you know, it's going to catch accidental mistakes, but it's not going to test. It's not going to catch deliberate dodges. When uh, somebody designs a piece of software, they put their own biases into it. It's they bring stuff too into it. That's part of who they are, their background and either they on purpose or accidentally don't realize the impact on people who are not like them. When you are auditing, and indeed when you are thinking about algorithms, how do you shut out any biases that you bring into it? Like, what is is the American Constitution your 
the standard that you bring into something or the law of the land? How does it work for an algorithm auditor, like, t- to be pure? <laughs> oh, I'm not pure at all. But the good news is I don't consider, you know, we're not following my ethics, right? Like, I'm a facilitator. So I ask them, who are the stakeholders here? And they provide a bunch of different stakeholder groups. And then I'm like, well, who's going to represent their opinions? I mean, I guess I have a little sway in there in the sense that they're like, oh, well, we're just going to, we're going to put the person in charge of PR at the company uh, as the representative for customers. I might be like, oh, maybe not. You know, maybe you find somebody who is actually like arguably coming from the perspective of the customer, like a customer or at least a customer care representative, somebody who's on the phone with customers and can speak from their perspective. So that's the kind of push I do, but I'm I'm not like saying, I know what a customer wants. Like I'm not injecting my, uh, my ethics into the conversation. I'm, I'm asking, but I am trying to be a faithful facilitator of this method. And I know you have to go in a few minutes. So just a couple of quick ones to wrap, wrap I have up. a question for you, uh, Colm. What are you, sure. Am I pronouncing your name right, Colm? That's not bad at all. I've been called colon. So uh, my son, my son, who's 21 or 20, has has been getting me to watch Dairy Girls oh, yeah. with him. And my favorite character and Dairy Girls is Colm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's me. <laughs> yeah, it's the Irish for uh, Dove. Dove? Believe it or not. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> so uh, from Dairy Girls, I guess you have to move to Bridgerton to follow the actress or for her further adventures. Exactly. I'm trying to think of other Netflix recommendations from Ireland that, that should be next on your list. I really, really like Dairy Girls. I love Claire. She's yeah. so expressive. I wonder what the Netflix algorithm will decide for you next, by the way. <laughs> Is, have, have you, in watching Dairy Girls, has it popped up some other stuff that was outside of your uh, watching bubble? To be honest, I don't spend a lot of time with a recommendation engine on Netflix. It's so overwhelmed by like young people's taste. I just, it, it almost never recommends anything I want. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, uh, that's, that's your next audit. What are you working on right now? Like either, I know you may, you may not want to say what client you're working on or anything like that, but is there a part of your business or this area that you are right? This is what we need to do next, or this is what I need to get involved in next. Yeah. Well, I'm trying to, I just wrote last week a, a an opinion piece for Bloomberg, which is where I write on typically once a week about what Biden's new CFPB, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau head, should be doing about algorithmic auditing or algorithm al- uh, regulating algorithms in the context of credit. So like student lending, mortgages, credit, uh, payday lending, subprime auto loans, that kind of stuff. And I gave really specific advice. So my goal is to get this, to hand off some of the work I want to do. I'm not doing, but I wish I were doing. I want the regulators to do it, honestly. Um, I want there to be pressure for this field to grow quickly and to grow in the right direction rather than just to be controlled by lobbyists, which it has been, especially by the Trump the Trump administration. So the CF, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has a lot of potential for good in this in this vein, but it it it's, it was totally dismantled by the Trump administration. So, so my very short term goal is is to do that. But like my medium term goal is 
just to get this uh, this concept of an algorithmic audit uh, to be standardized because it's algorithms aren't going away and they're controlling more and more of our lives. So the question is, are they even compliant with existing law? That's like the, my first, the first step. And then like, of course, everyone else is talking about like, should we get rid of section 230? What should we do? Like in terms of social media algorithms. And those are really, really important questions too, but I think they're a lot harder. What is section 230 for people outside of US? Oh yeah, that's, that's the law that sort of gives Facebook and Twitter, it gets, it gets them off the hook. They have no responsibility for things that are posted by other people. They have no legal responsibility. But of course, it's not really written that way. And it's, you know, and they, and they editorialize by having their, their newsfeed algorithm, like privilege and amplify certain voices and suppress other voices. Um, so th- it's not simply that people are posting and they're ignoring it. They're actually not ignoring it. They're amplifying it to make more money. So I don't even, whatever, my point is that like that, that's a different, much more complicated morass that I'm not even talking about. I'm just talking about like things like hiring. Algorithms are being used to hire. And, and given how many people have lost their job recently, like there's going to be a big, big deal. So if there's really problems in the hiring process, which happens online now, like we need to deal with that, like lickety split, because the biases are going to be, you know, amplified and really problematic. Um, so that's, that, that has to happen. And that's, that's my medium term goal is to get these, get these algorithms sort of following rules that the rules that already exist. And finally, is there anything you're excited about in this area that gives you kind of hope that you're not a lone voice or there is a groundswell or indeed that technically something is happening that might make your life easier? I mean, everything is looking up. I mean, everything is looking up. I mean, I have more competition in my field, which, you know, it it could sound like a bad thing, but I think it's a good thing. It means more people are betting on this um, being an industry. I have more clients who are interested because Biden is now the new sheriff in town and people are starting to think maybe something will happen in this more awareness by the public. Um, the Social Dilemma, that movie came out last semester or last year. And then like this other movie that is coming out in a couple months called Coded Bias. Both of them feature this kind of issue very prominently. And it's, you know, so it's getting a lot of attention. And I think that's all it's just a good thing. It's not clear how we're going to address it all, but at least we're going to be paying attention to it. It must be in your area when you hear that a movie title is co- is coded bias, which is which would would have been such a specific term buried within you know an organization, and now that it's the name of a movie, you must feel like uh, you know I followed that band when they were cool. Look at them now doing stadiums. It's funny that you say that because not only am I in that that movie, but like they actually my they actually came and like filmed my band playing. So there's like a lot of yeah. No, it's it's cool. It's it, it's really amazing. It's a it, especially considering how I started in 2012 or whatever it was, worrying that I might be the only person worried about this stuff. And finally, who's your band? Where can we see you next <laughs> when everybody gets back indoors? Oh my god! I wish I knew. I wish I knew. 
Thanks a million, Cathy O'Neill. You'll be hearing a lot more about her trade and... With Grammarly, you can feel confident no matter what you're writing or where you're writing it. Wait, how did that ad for Grammarly get in here? I really need to fix that algorithm. It's been acting up. Anyway, thanks to Cathy O'Neill. Check out her algo auditing firm, Orca. Her book, Weapons of Math Destruction. Follow her on Twitter at mathbabe.org. The Function Room podcast is presented and produced by me, Colm O'Regan, at Colm O'Regan on Twitter, or at Function Room Pod, at least until the person who is unusing the Function Room handle on Twitter fecks off and opens that pub or not. Till next time, goodbye. Goodbye.